Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together tonight. We thank you for the gift of this book. Lord, we pray that you would use our study of this book to help us learn what it means to love you and to follow you and to serve you. We pray that you would help us to put aside all of the different things that we have been thinking about or worried about today and that you would open our hearts that we might hear your still small voice. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a little disclaimer before I start. For those of you who are assiduous students and did such a great job of reading the next chapter, which was really long and um, digesting all of it, I am sorry to tell you we are not. However, however, if you did that, your labor is going to really be rewarded in two weeks and partially tonight because as you know, if you have read the next chapter, it focuses a lot on a dialogue that Lewis has with someone named George MacDonald. And it is a fabulous dialogue and in some ways the heart of the book. But most people don't really know who George MacDonald is or why he matters. And so it is uh, going to be much richer after you have learned a little bit about George MacDonald, which I'm going to try to teach you some about tonight. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, a couple other disclaimers. The first thing is please do not come next Wednesday night. Do not come January 25th to St. Philip's. Do not come up here expecting dinner. There will not be anyone here uh, because we will be in preparation for the Mira Anglicanism Conference that starts the next day. So don't come then, but do come the week after, particularly if you already read this chapter, because that is when all of the study that you did will bear beautiful fruit. So keep that in mind. Um, tonight, I think I have the most obscure music that I've found yet in the history of this course. So um, almost to the point, not quite that I would pay you $100 if you knew what it was. But I'm not going to say that because y'all always surprise me. So let's see what we've got. Oop. Well, there we go. It's quite lovely.
torturing you with that, but that is, uh, no, but good guess. So that is part of a suite of Songs of Scotland by the Scottish composer Hamish McCoon, um, who you probably have not ever heard of either. Uh, but he was very, very well known in Victorian England and Scotland. And one of the things that he's known for is he took some of George MacDonald, oh, there's George MacDonald's name again, some of his poetry and set it to music. And it was very popular for concerts during that late 19th, early 20th century period. So we'll come back to all that in a minute. But let's start, as always, by saying our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So, a warm welcome to all of you, particularly to folks who are new. If this is the first time you're here, welcome. Uh, if it's the first time you're here on the live stream or the podcast, welcome. Uh, for those who are new, just three things about approaches to this class. Uh, the first approach is what we call being on the beach. That means you show up occasionally and you don't do anything. Uh, which is perfectly fine, and you just listen when you feel like it, and you might get something every now and then that's interesting. If that's all you want to do, we are delighted for you to be here. Or you can snorkel, which means you go deep on the things that are interesting. So, for example, if tonight you think George MacDonald is interesting, um, then you would want to get the handouts that are over there and actually read them. Uh, that would be snorkeling, or you could be a scuba diver where you get all the handouts about everything all the time and then go home and look up Hamish McCoon and play all the things that he ever composed. Not that I may have done that. Uh, but I also want to encourage you that if you are not on the class email list, please do sign up, either on the little sheet here or if you're online, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and I'll get you added. Uh, I do owe you an email from the last class that has the summary from last week on it. So we've been talking for a while about mere Anglicanism. Mere Anglicanism is not just sold out, but sold out and packed to the gills. Um, we also are pretty much sold out in terms of need for volunteers at this point. Um, but many of you who have already signed up to be volunteers, you haven't heard from me yet, but you will. Uh, I have things for you to do. So it's going to be wonderful, but I would encourage you to keep the conference in your prayers. 
And I also want to just point out the theme of the conference because it relates so much to why George MacDonald was such a seminal figure in Lewis's life. And the theme of the conference is telling a more beautiful story, lessons from C.S. Lewis on reaching a fractured world. And we're going to come back to that when we get to MacDonald. So, last time, which seems so long ago, some of you know our daughter got married this weekend, so it has been a little bit of a whirlwind. So last Wednesday seems like about 100 years ago. Uh, but the chapter last week was one that if you have not read, I would encourage you to go back and read because it is so very much uh, something that relates to what we find in our culture today where there's such an emphasis on outward appearance, such an emphasis on always wanting to be youthful and beautiful and an emphasis on uh, judging other people by their outward appearance. So just to summarize from last week, Lewis starts off, he's the narrator in this chapter, wondering whether this whole journey where they've landed in this beautiful heavenly country, whether it's just a cruel joke, whether they've been brought there only to be taunted. And he contemplates in horror uh, the fact that since he's permeable, what will happen if it actually rains, that the rain will feel like machine gun fire on him. And then he gets worried when he sees these flying insects, that the insect, because it's hard like iron, if it hit his head, it might just kill him. Of course, he's already dead, but that aside. Uh, so he's very worried about all of these things, and he decides to go and hide. And there is a whole subtext here that we talked about with Genesis 3 and the fall and Adam and Eve, and they're immediately wanting to go and hide uh, when they had disobeyed God. So Lewis says, if only I could find a trace of evidence that it was really possible for a ghost to stay, that the choice were not a cruel comedy, I would not go back. And then he, out of the corner of his eye, sees another ghost who's this well-dressed woman who had been clad in great finery that's now in rags, who's tottering around on her high heels trying to hide near the same trees. And there's a bright spirit following her, and she pleads over and over again for this bright spirit to leave her alone, to have some decency. And the bright spirit is trying to help her, saying she's going in the wrong direction. Because remember, when you come into this beautiful, far green country, there's a river, and then you can see in the distance these beautiful mountains. And that that's what everyone is drawn to. That that's clearly the heart of the country that they've come to. But this woman's going away from the mountains. And so the bright spirit comes to her and says, I can help you. You want to get to the mountains where all this beauty and joy is. And he says, I will carry you if need be. But she is horrified. And she says, I could not possibly go with you because he does not understand how embarrassing it would be because all of the other people are solid and you can see through her because she's a ghost. So she feels like somebody that went to a fancy dress party wearing a Speedo. 
So she, she is horrified and does not want to go out and says that it is just far worse than going out with nothing on at all. And she says, I'd rather die. And with his little sardonic humor, Lewis has the bright spirit point out that she's already died. And uh, the ghost then says, oh, I wish I'd never been born. What are we born for? And the spirit immediately says, you were born for infinite happiness. And you can step out into that infinite happiness at any moment. And then there's this great line. Don't you remember on earth that there were things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. Come and try. And the ghost almost is convinced, but suddenly cries out, No, I can't. I tell you, I can't. I almost thought, but when it comes to the point, you've no right to ask me to do a thing like that. It's disgusting. I should never forgive myself if I did. It's not fair. They ought to have warned us. I'd never have come. And now, please, please go away. And then the most significant line of the chapter, the spirit turns to her and says, Friend, could you only for a moment fix your mind on something not yourself? And we talked about how we bandy about this world, narcissism about our culture today, but most people have forgotten the myth of Narcissus. And the myth of Narcissus, of course, is that Narcissus is this incredibly beautiful, handsome young man. And everywhere he goes, people fawn on him because he's so attractive. And he becomes convinced of how beautiful he is, and he finds this pond that's very still where he can stand next to it, and he can gaze at the perfection of his profile and his features. And he wants to get closer and closer to the beauty of that perfection, and he ultimately drowns in the pond by trying to embrace his own beauty. And Lewis is trying to show us what happens when we think only of ourselves, and particularly only of our appearance. And then the, the bright spirit says, well, there's only one thing that remains. And so he summons a herd of unicorns to come at them. And of course, her instinct is to flee away and to go to where the bright spirit is. And that's where the chapter cuts off. So uh, there was a lot of imagery that uh, I'm not going to go over again that's from your mythology. If you haven't studied mythology and you want to keep reading Lewis, please go buy yourself a copy of Edith Hamilton and read it. It will really help you out. Uh, but there are a number of major themes in this chapter. The first one, our image and external appearance are of no consequence to God and can be an impediment to our spiritual growth. The second one, comparing ourselves with others and feeling less than can be a ploy that Satan uses to keep us from the joy that God intends for us. If we are so busy looking at what everyone else has and not focusing on what we've been given through the mercy and grace of God, we can make ourselves miserable 
even in times where we ought to be feeling joy. Thirdly, shame can be a gift from God if it causes us to realize our utter bankruptcy and need for Jesus. And we talked a lot about how in our culture, uh, people you see all the time, don't let anyone shame you or don't ever feel shame. Shame is evil, shame is bad. But I think shame is very much like that old quotation from Mark Twain, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. There are things that are shameful. There are things that we do that we should be ashamed of. Uh, And that means shame that motivates us and pushes us toward God, realizing that we are inadequate in and of ourselves and that we need the grace and mercy of God. Fourthly, our natural inclination to hide and isolate when we feel shame is born of pride and builds a wall between us and God. And that inclination you see right back there in Genesis 3, the instant that Adam and Eve eat of the apple, they know that they're naked and they want to hide. And we talk about uh, the fact that that shame that they felt builds that wall between them and God. But you see that uh, also when you look in the New Testament, and we talked last week about the parable of the prodigal son, and how the son that basically said to his father, I wish you were dead, give me my share of the inheritance, and then he goes away and spends it on all the things that would most horrify his father, But instead of the father wanting to uh, disown the son, instead he waits for him to come back every day. Which leads us to the fifth point, which is that God wants to help us in our shame and draw us into his light and away from the darkness of our sin and self-reliance. Even in Genesis 3, when they have sinned, when Adam and Eve are hiding, God sees them. As I said, it's like with my little two-year-old grandson who looks at me, he calls me Boo, and he's like, Boo, I hide. And then he goes. <laughs> and of course, I can see him. And that's the same way it was with Adam and Eve. God could see them just fine. And yet, God treats them with dignity. He asks them, where are you? Even though he knows perfectly well where they are. And he continues to reach out to them after what you could argue was the greatest sin and catastrophe in the history of the human race. So it is a great reminder that when we mess up, which we will, that instead of hiding and distancing ourselves from God, we need to run toward him. So that brings us to our little excursion into George MacDonald. So how many of you have ever even heard of George MacDonald before tonight? Oh, that's good. Okay. Of course, that's mostly those of you that have been in these classes. (laughs) But I'm glad you retained that. Um, So George MacDonald is someone who is very out of vogue right now. Uh, In the early 20th century, anyone um, who was educated in England or America would have known who George MacDonald was and would have been able to tell you a little bit about him. But part of the reason that George MacDonald is so important 
is because of the way he had an impact on Lewis's life and was instrumental in Lewis's conversion. And part of the way this connects to what I was saying about the theme of mere Anglicanism is that Lewis's conversion story, which if you've never read, I would encourage you to read. It's in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Lewis was not converted just by rational thought or just by looking at the evidence about Christianity, although that was part of it. What drew Lewis almost against his will to the Christian faith was the beauty of the Christian story and the way that the Christian story provided a framework which made all of reality make sense to him. And he got that idea, that longing for beauty, a lot of that came to him through his reading of George MacDonald. So there was a letter that Lewis wrote in 1946 um, that is a quick summary of uh, the book, Surprised by Joy. So I just wanted to share that with you. So this man, you know, Lewis answered every letter he ever got, which is really amazing. And he got letters from a lot of crazy people. And he answered all of them um, and took them seriously. So this was from Mr. Fredama, whoever that was, who had asked Lewis about the steps in his conversion to Christianity. So Lewis said he was baptized in the Church of Ireland, which is the Anglican Church. His parents weren't notably pious, but went to church and took him. His mother died when he was a child. He said his Christian faith was first undermined by the attitude taken toward pagan religion and the notes of modern editors of Latin and Greek poets at school. They always assumed that the ancient religion was pure error. Hence, in my mind, the obvious question, why shouldn't ours be equally false? A theosophical matron, theosophy is another sort of Christian heresy that was very prevalent in the early 20th century. Matron at one school helped to break up my early beliefs, and after that, a rationalist tutor to whom I went finished the job. I abandoned all belief in Christianity at about the age of 14, although I pretended to believe for fear of my elders. I thus went through the ceremony of confirmation in total hypocrisy. My beliefs continue to be agnostic with fluctuation toward pantheism and various other sub-Christian beliefs till I was about 29. So this interestingly puts Lewis in the same place that a lot of people in their 20s to 30s in our culture are in today. They have rejected Christianity for a variety of reasons, and they don't see anything that is attractive about it or why it should even be on their radar. But then there's the rest. I was brought back, A, by philosophy. I still think Bishop George Berkeley's proof for the existence of God is unanswerable. We'll talk about that another week. By increasing knowledge of, wait for it, medieval literature. Now, I'm sure with your non-believing friends, the first thing you want to do is get a copy of Troilus and Cressida or um, the Rude Cycle or some of those things and give to them. But Lewis says that medieval literature made it harder and harder to think 
that all those great poets and philosophers were wrong because medieval literature is Christ-haunted. All through it, there's a vein of the Christian faith. And then C, by the strong influence of two writers, the Presbyterian George MacDonald and the Roman Catholic G.K. Chesterton. More about that in a minute. By argument with an anthroposophist, Owen Barfield, who failed to convert me to his own views, a kind of Gnosticism, but his attack on my own presupposition, presuppositions smashed the ordinary pseudoscientific world picture forever. So one of the things you'll notice here is that a lot of what influenced Lewis was abstract. It was um, not one of those 12 facts that make you consider the Christian faith. It was other types of things that affected the way he thought about reality. And I think that is something that the church needs to reclaim because a lot of people out there think they know what the Christian faith is and they've rejected it. And so they don't even want to hear about it. But many of them are living lives that they would tell you are full of emptiness and despair and loneliness. And if you can talk to them about something that's beautiful, something that um, is full of meaning and purpose, you can get a hearing. So this next letter was written to, from Lewis to one of his good friends when he was 18 years old. Uh, just as an aside, it's too bad we live in an email culture because all these kinds of encounters no one is ever going to hear about from anyone in our generation. So he wrote in this letter, I've had a great literary experience this week. The book to get is George MacDonald's fairy romance, Fantasties, which I picked up by hazard. Have you read it? At any rate, whatever the book you are reading now, you simply must get this at once. Of course, it's hopeless for me to try and describe it. But when you followed the hero Anodos along the little stream of the fairy wood, have heard about the terrible ash tree, and heard the episode of Cosmo, I know you will quite agree with me. You must not be disappointed at the first chapter, which is rather conventional fairy tale style, and after it, you won't be able to stop until you finish. There are one or two poems in the tale, which with one or two exceptions, are shockingly bad, so don't try to appreciate them. But you can see from that, there was something in that story that caught Lewis, not just so much that he thought, oh, this is a good book, but that he stopped the moment he finished reading it and wrote his friend and said, stop reading whatever you're doing, go out and get this. Something touched his agnostic, atheist, hardened soul because of this story. And then, in Surprise by Joy, Lewis says this, all the books were beginning to turn against me, that is, against his aggressive evangelical atheism. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experience as a reader. George MacDonald had done more to me than any other writer. Of course, it was a pity he had that bee in his bonnet about Christianity. He was good in spite of it. Chesterton had more sense than all the other moderns put together, uh, baiting, of course, his Christianity. Johnson was one of the few authors whom I felt I could trust utterly. Curiously enough, 
he had the same kink. Spencer and Melton, by a strange coincidence, had it too. Even among ancient authors, the same paradox was to be found. The most religious, Plato, Aeschylus, Virgil, were clearly those on whom I could really feed. And what Lewis was talking about here is that when he read these books, there was something that touched his soul. There was something in them that was different from the world that he was experiencing. And remember, he was in Oxford um, in this time. He had been through a world war and seen all of this horror and evil that had taken his atheism and solidified it so it was had a brilliant, bright crest around it. But somehow these books were getting through that. And then he recounts the same story uh, the first time he got that book. Uh, that he had written his friend about. Turning to the bookstall at the train station, I picked out an everyman, that's a cheap dime series of books, and a dirty jacket, Fantasties of Fairy Romance. Then the train came out. I can still remember the voice of the porter calling out the village names, Saxon and sweet as nut, Bookham, Effingham, Horsley Train. That evening I began to read my new book, the woodland journeyings in that story, the ghostly enemies, the ladies, both good and evil, were close enough to my habitual imagery to lure me on without the perception of a change. It is as if I were carried sleeping across the frontier, or as if I had died in the old country and could never remember how I came alive in the new. I had not the faintest notion what I had let myself in for by buying fantasties. That night, my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me took longer. But what Lewis is getting at here is that these stories awoke longing in his heart, a longing that resonated with what he felt life ought to be about, even though his intellect didn't completely agree. And it's interesting because I think we see so much of the same thing in our culture today. Think about when Harry Potter first came out, how hordes of high school, middle and high school students who had never been anywhere near a book were suddenly going to bookstores and standing in line to buy books that were 800 pages long. And then they would hole up in their rooms and read them for hours on end. Um, you see the same thing still with the Lord of the Rings, uh, where people who have no religious interest at all love those stories and are obsessed with them. So there are so many, many things like that, that we still see this truth in our culture, but we need to figure out how to lean into that. So Lewis, because he was such a fan of MacDonald, decided that he was going to do, even though MacDonald was wildly out of fashion, he was going to do an anthology of MacDonald's works. And so he did that, and we're gonna look at part of the preface that Lewis wrote to it. And it's a little bit dense, but it's worth the labor because it explains part of why this man had such a huge impact, not on Lewis alone, but on a lot of other people. Many of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers, uh, who wrote My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers 
was hugely influenced by George MacDonald and said he was one of the most profound influencers toward his own coming to the Christian faith. Um, there are a bunch of other people of that same ilk who were drawn to the Christian faith through George MacDonald's writings. So um, I'm going to read you some of this and then summarize some of it. So Lewis says, all I knew of George MacDonald, I've learned either from his own books or from the biography which his son uh, published in 1924, and I've never but once talked to anyone who had met him. So he goes on and talks about one of the things about George MacDonald that's really interesting, because Freud, of course, was huge in the early 20th century, um, still huge today, uh, but Freud talks so much about how people's conflicts with their father define who they are. But George MacDonald had absolutely the opposite situation. He adored his father, and he had a wonderful, wonderful relationship with his father. And he saw in that relationship that he felt that fatherhood, healthy fatherhood, might be at the core of the universe. And so it set him up to be able to understand the fatherhood of God in a way that is uh, much more consonant with what we see in scripture, because so many of us have had unfortunate um, images of fathers, either from media or from personal experience. And so the idea of a good father is hard sometimes to get our head around. But McDonald's father seems to have been a truly remarkable person. And so, uh, the interesting thing, though, about this is that uh, George MacDonald's father was the one sort of odd man out in a family of what we might call hyper-Calvinist. Uh, not just Calvinist, hyper, maybe hyper-hyper-Calvinist. And um, that, that whole idea of uh, God is a mean old man up in the sky gazing around earth, looking for anyone having fun so he can send down a lightning bolt and say, stop it! And that, that is kind of what George MacDonald's family was like growing up. But his father wasn't like that. And so he managed to come away from all of that very interestingly with great love for his father and also appreciation of the good points of Calvinism, being able to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so he saw, uh, as Lewis put it, it enabled him to see elements of real and perhaps irreplaceable worth in the thing from which he was revolting. And then Lewis spent some time talking about how MacDonald loved the rock from which he had been hewn, which was Scotland. He was a Scot through and through and through. And one of the things about people who are Scottish is that they love the land. They love the water, they love the sky. And MacDonald spent a huge amount of time out in God's creation, and he wrote a lot about the beauty of it. And we've talked in here before about the importance of natural theology and how we've kind of let that go. But the part of the way that God testifies, as Psalm 19 says, is the heavens are declaring the glory of God 
and the firm, and McDonald was um, just surrounded with this beauty of Scotland growing up, and he incorporates that in his writing. And the interesting thing, and this is another reason why McDonald is so important for our age, uh, Lewis said, McDonald's best characters are those which reveal how much real charity and spiritual wisdom can coexist with the profession of a theology that seems to encourage neither. MacDonald's own grandmother, a truly terrible old woman who had burnt his uncle's fiddle as a satanic snare, might well have appeared to him as what is now inaccurately called a mere sadist. Yet when something very like her is delineated in Robert Falconer, and again in What's, what, what's Mine's Mine, in other words, there's an old lady character in those books, we are compelled to look deeper, to see inside the repellent crust something that we can wholeheartedly pity, and even with reservations, respect. In this way, MacDonald illustrates not the doubtful maxim that to know all is to forgive all, but the unshakable truth that to forgive is to know. He who loves sees. And I could spend a long time on this, but I'm not going to. But the, the point MacDonald is making is that we are all too easy to put people in a box and say, you are in that category, you are that kind of person, and therefore I dismiss you, I cancel you, there is nothing good about you whatsoever. Whereas what you see in McDonald is this profoundly nuanced, and I would say Christian view that understands that all of us are made in the image of God, and all of us are sinners. It's like what Martin Luther said, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinful. And that all of us are that mix, and that McDonald is able to see the beauty even in the midst of the brokenness. So McDonald also, and you can see why this would endear him to Lewis, spent part of his time as a young man and the library of a great manor house, which has never been known what house it was, but he spent um, over a year cataloging the library of this great house. Now, for some of us, that sounds like a nightmare. For some of the others of us, that sounds like heaven. Uh, but this idea of the great library um, haunts his books, and it is one of those things uh, that defined McDonald for the rest of his life. Shortly after that, he uh, felt a call from God and went to seminary and became a minister. And he is someone who uh, developed in sort of the Congregational Presbyterian denomination and was a minister for a long while, but eventually left the full-time ministry because he was spending so much time writing and speaking. But Lewis says that MacDonald is interesting not just as a writer and not just as a Christian teacher, but because of the way that he combines both of those things and how each of them informs the other. And I love the way Lewis says this. If we define literature as an art whose medium is words, then certainly George MacDonald has no place in its first rank, perhaps not even in its second. There are indeed passages, many of them in this collection, where the wisdom, and I would dare to call it 
the holiness that are in him triumph over and even burn away the baser elements in his style. The expression becomes precise, weighty, economic, acquires a cutting edge. But then he says that there's also a nonconformist verbosity, pulpit traditions, florid words, and then he goes on to say what he does best is fantasy. Fantasy that hovers between the allegorical, allegorical and the mythopoeic. Now, mythopoeic is a big word, uh, but it basically means the creating of story. It's the idea of inventing a story that grabs you. It's a story with a hook. It's not just uh, like Snoopy writing, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, it is a story with a hook that you've read the first paragraph and you're just hooked and you, you care and you want to go deeper into the story. And a myth for Lewis is a story where the mere pattern of events is all that matters. It's not so much the expression. It's nice if it's expressed well, but he says if the events lodge themselves in your brain, that's what matters, not, not the beautiful prose. And he says the, that what McDonald does is something that is remarkable. And he says that in poetry, the words are the body and the theme or content is the soul. But in myth, the imagined events are the body and something inexpressible is the soul. The words or mime or film or pictorial series are not even clothes. They're not even much more than a telephone. And he goes on to say most myths were made in prehistoric times and are carried on through the generations in oral tradition. And he says that there are not very many modern myth makers. But he goes on to say MacDonald is the greatest genius. Now that's pretty strong. MacDonald is the greatest genius of this kind, that of a mythopoeic author, of this kind whom I know. And he says, this art is in some ways more akin to music than to poetry. It goes beyond the expression of things we've already felt. It arouses in us sensations we have never had before, never anticipated having, as though we had broken out of our normal mode of consciousness and possessed joys not promised to our birth. It gets under our skin, hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts or even our passions, troubles oldest certainties till all questions are reopened, and in general, shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of our lives. And what Lewis is trying to get at here is the impact that a really good story can have on us. And I would say even maybe to some extent in our world, a really good movie can have a little bit of this. But if you think about and I'm sorry I keep going back to The Lord of the Rings, but it's such a great example, and most of you have probably not read MacDonald, but if you think about The Lord of the Rings and the scene in the Council of Elrond, I don't know if y'all know what that is, um, but the scene in the Council of Elrond, there are all these powerful people fighting about who's gonna carry this room that could, this ring that could end the world, who's gonna carry it to destroy it? And they're all fighting and arguing and, um, puffing themselves up, and then finally this little hobbit 
the meekest, most unimportant person there walks up and says, I will carry the ring. And if you're not moved by that when you read it, you have a heart of stone. And it is, it's just, it's beautiful. And that's exactly the kind of moment that Lewis is trying to describe in this preface that MacDonald is so good in writing. And he says that this mythopoeic art is where MacDonald excels. And he says the novels are full of these kinds of things. He says they're not good novels. He says uh, few of his novels are good and none is very good. Uh, but he says the most remarkable thing about them is that the good characters in the novels are always the best and most convincing. Whereas, uh, and he says, his saints live, his villains are stagey. And if you're a writer or you know writers or you've studied writing or literature, one of the things you know is that it is much easier to make a villain interesting than it is to make a good person interesting. It is really hard to write a good story about people who are good, because people think goodness is boring. But the fact of the matter is goodness is not boring, but it takes someone who is imbued with a scriptural understanding to be able to write in such a way that that goodness leaps off the page at you. And you see that in the Narnia stories, you see it in the Lord of the Rings, you see it some in Harry Potter. If you read Elizabeth Googe, you'll see it in her work. It is a kind of writing that is very, very rare in our age. But the interesting thing is that that type of writing pierces your heart and it makes you wanna go back and reread those books Anybody, well, most people I know, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people I know who love the Narnia stories or who love the Lord of the Rings have read them over and over and over or have watched the Lord of the Rings movies over and over and over. And they're not doing that because they fell asleep and don't know what happened. They're doing it because when they enter into that story, it touches something in their heart and they want to get back to that and they find that it nurtures their soul. And that's what Lewis loves about MacDonald. And it's so amazing, this next line, this is in that second paragraph. Lewis says, my own debt to this book, uh, and I think this is the unspoken sermons book he's talking about. My own debt to this book is almost as great as one man can owe to another. And nearly all serious inquirers to whom I've introduced it acknowledge that it has given them great help, sometimes indispensable help, toward the very acceptance of the Christian faith. The divine sonship is the key conception which unites all the different elements of his thought. I dare not say he's never in error, but to speak plainly, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself. Hence his Christ-like union of tenderness and severity. 
Nowhere else outside the New Testament have I found terror and comfort so intertwined. The title, Inexorable Love, which I've given to several individual extracts, would serve for the whole collection. And he goes on to say, this urgency never becomes shrill. All the sermons are suffused with a spirit of love and wonder, which prevents it from doing so. MacDonald shows God threatening, but as Jeremy Taylor says, he threatens terrible things if we will not be happy or joyful. He hopes indeed that all men will be saved, but that is because he hopes that all will repent. He knows none better that even omnipotence cannot save the unconverted. He never trifles with eternal impossibilities. And he goes on to say, I've never concealed the fact that I regarded him as my master. Indeed, I fancy I've never written a book in which I did not quote from him. And it is amazing that Lewis was so deeply, deeply, deeply drawn to MacDonald. And look at this last part. He says, Fantasties was romantic enough in all conscience, but there was a difference. Nothing was at that time further from my thoughts than Christianity, and I therefore had no idea, no notion, what this difference really was. I was only aware that if this new world was strange, it was also homely and humble. That if this was a dream, it was a dream in which one at least felt strangely vigilant that the whole book had about it a sort of cool morning innocence, and also quite unmistakably a certain quality of death, good death. What it actually did to me was to convert, even to baptize my imagination. It did nothing to my intellect nor to my conscience. That came far later. I mean, when it had really begun, I found I was still with MacDonald and that he had accompanied me all the way and that I was now at last ready to hear from him much he could not have told me at that first meeting. But in a sense, what he was now telling me was the very same thing he told me from the beginning. There was no question of getting through to the colonel and throwing away the shell. No question of a gilded pill. The pill was gold all through. The quality which had enchanted me in his imaginative works turned out to be the quality of the real universe, the divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic reality in which we all live. I should have been shocked in my teens if anybody had told me that what I learned to love in Fantasties was goodness. But now that I know, I see there was no deception. The deception is all the other way around. And that prosaic moralism, which confines goodness to the region of law and duty, which never lets us feel in our face the sweet air blowing from the land of righteousness, never reveals that elusive form, which if once seen, must inevitably be desired with all but sensuous desire, the thing more gold than gold. And what he's getting at here is that all of what MacDonald is doing is what Lewis calls in the weight of glory, breaking the spell that we're under. 
breaking the enchantment that we're under of thinking that this world is only full of ugliness and violence and pain and that man is born to die and there's no goodness, there's no beauty, there's no truth. Everything's relative and all of it is empty and meaningless. And what McDonald does is to try to open the curtain and show us the wonder of what God has made the wonder of what he intended man and woman to be and how when we come to Christ, when we encounter that form, that's what the form is, the form is Jesus himself. When we encounter Jesus and his beauty and truth and fullness, it changes our life and that the whole universe is thrumming with the sound of the goodness of God but that Satan's great deception is to make us think that Christianity is only about following rules and that it's a dry and empty obedience that leads you to death and with nothing that you got in return. And I love the way that he says we need to feel in our face the sweet air blowing from the land of righteousness. And think just how we've seen in the great divorce, the descriptions of the waterfall and that far green country and the beauty of that just pouring out of the way that it's been made and how Lewis is trying to encourage us to think about that is what we are made for. And so much of Lewis's understanding of that is rooted in his reading of McDonald. So I think one of the things that we can learn from this is the whole idea of what does it mean to communicate the gospel. So often we have dumbed the gospel down, we've been reductionist in a way that is part of our culture and no part of the New Testament. When you look at the way Jesus communicates the gospel, it is through storytelling. It is story after story after story that Jesus makes up. It is mythopoeic. Jesus illustrates the most profound truth about forgiveness and salvation and serving others and loving others through stories. And yet when we think about sharing our faith, we don't think about stories. We think about trying to beat people up about their own worldview and its inadequacies or their political failings or whatever else it might be. Whereas if we re-embrace what Jesus does and re-embrace what Lewis loves about McDonald and re-embrace what Lewis himself does, we might find that people that have turned a deaf ear to the gospel might suddenly be drawn to it inexorably. And that's one of the reasons I love the conference theme for Mere Anglicanism, telling a more beautiful story. There are so many stories out there right now that are not beautiful. I remember when our youngest child was in ninth grade at a local private school and I saw the reading list that they had to read that year. And I thought, well, it is no wonder that we're having an epidemic of depression and anxiety their main selection was a book about a group of five random people that meet on the top of a skyscraper because they've all gone there on the same night to commit suicide. 
That's what kids are reading. That's what they're being forced to read in many schools. And when you read a steady diet of that kind of thing, it's very different from the kind of story we've been talking about tonight. People are longing for a more beautiful story. And people who are Christians have the greatest story and the gospel, but we also have a lot of help from people like Lewis and Tolkien and MacDonald who have written these stories that point toward Jesus and the gospel. So just to close this little quotation, which addresses the same point, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed fair and beautiful beyond all measure, that the things of your kingdom are things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard because of the wonder of how amazing they are. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would not just look down all the time, but that we would look up, that we would look up towards you, towards your mercy and your grace and your goodness and your justice. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to look at all of the people that you place in our path each day, not as people who are out to uh, undermine us or what we believe, but as people that you made and that you love who are sadly broken and sadly lost. And we pray that you would inspire us to share with them a more beautiful story that might point them to you, their creator, the only one in whom there is life and joy. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.